Well, this is Pastor George here, and in light of recent events last week that our beloved Pastor Harry Reader has gone to be with the Lord, uh, I decided to do something different on this week's Presbyterian Reformed Churchman. I'm going to play a message that Dr. Reader gave at the 2021 Gospel Reformation Network Conference. That's two years ago. It's a talk he gave. But, but before that, I just want to say some words about Harry Reader. Um, words can't adequately describe how this news has been for many of us. I won't pretend to have known Harry very well, but I do know that he took my calls. I do know that he uh, he made time for me, and, and I was fairly new in his life. Uh, I still have a message on my phone that was almost a three-minute long voice message that he left for me. And again, I don't say that to um, to brag. That's just what Harry did. Uh, he he knew I needed some help, and he took the time to leave me a message. Um, and this is one one time I'm actually when when it happened, I was sad that I missed the call. Um, now I'm grateful for God's providence because I. I got to listen to that message. Um, but he made time for people, and that is the testimony that you're hearing uh, from so many. Uh, Harry Reader was a friend of Meadowview. Meadowview is the church where I pastor, and the reason he was a friend of Meadowview is because some 20-something years ago when Harry was at Christ's Covenant in Matthews, North Carolina, Meadowview is in Lexington, North Carolina, and his good friend, Pastor Gary Cox, was the pastor here at the time. And Harry would tell me on a number of occasions how Meadowview was what he said was the first church revitalization implementation of what would become his Embers to a Flame uh, program that he uh, that he launched and ran in, in Birmingham uh, to, to this day, uh, with even through the Lampstand Conference, I believe that he does. But a lot of the learnings that Harry had from his uh, 1980s days at Pineland Presbyterian Church were my good friend. Aldo Leon pastors um, became the uh, the program or the uh, the way to do ministry in a church revitalization, and it was launched here at Meadowview. So Meadowview members actually know and remember Harry very well. They tell me stories of the Civil War trips that they did with him, and even uh, some members went to Israel with him, and, and just his storytelling um, is one thing that the members here talk about all the time. But our thoughts and prayers go out to the family, um, to Harry's daughters, to Ike, to his wife, to Briarwood, to everybody who's called Harry a mentor and a friend and a father and a brother in Christ. We're going to miss him at this year's General Assembly. Why I wanted to play this talk for, for this podcast is because it really brings together so much of Harry's life work, his call to stand for truth, his clarity in addressing the issues facing the church today, uh, his admonition to stay on miss mission, on message, and in ministry, his view of the power of the gospel to change a person in and through sanctification, and his call for Christians to live out our faiths in all spheres of our lives. It's uh, it's a great talk. Like like I said, it's two years old, but there's a lot of readerisms in it, a lot of uh, Harry's personality, a lot of his patented storytelling, even, I think, uh, some of the anecdotes that were given during uh, today's celebration of life or funeral for Harry Reader uh, by his family. Some of those stories are even in this talk. And so 
Um, I, I know it'll be a blessing for you. Again, I've said this before, but I'm on the general council of the Gospel Reformation Network, and Harry was an executive council member. And uh, I'll just share that it's the mission of the GRN to cultivate healthy Reformed churches in the Presbyterian Church in America, and that's uh, what this conference was was all about. Oh, Church Arise was the title of the conference. And if you're listening on on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcast, whatever, you'll hear the talk. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes or in the details of of this YouTube video, and you can click that link, and you'll just get to watch that on the Gospel Reformation Network. Um, YouTube page. I'd rather send the the views there than here. But uh, before we do that, I want to just read this statement from the GRN. Uh, the executive director, Pastor John Payne, uh, wrote this, and it's on their website, but I, I do want to just read it in honor of our friend and mentor, uh, Harry Reader. And, you know, it, it, I say this so solemnly, I just watched the, uh, the funeral, um, just powerful, uh, testimony of a, of a man who was obsessed with Jesus Christ, and so it was very Christ uh, exalting. But we remember, like we we don't mourn as people without hope. He is where he wants to be, and uh, this is what he preached his whole life. And so we just need to remember what Harry preached, and then we can smile about where he is right now. We, we'll miss him. But uh, this from John Payne of the GRN, dear friends, it has been an extremely difficult week for GRN council members friends, family, and the wider church after the sudden loss of our dear friend, Reverend Dr. Harry L. Reeder III. His lion-hearted preaching, engaging teaching, and loving pastoral heart will be deeply missed. Tributes to his life have been pouring out all over the world, and there will be more to come. Uh, Briarwood Presbyterian Church has scheduled a celebration of life life service for 1 p.m. on Wednesday, May 24th. It it's happened at this point. It will be live streamed on Facebook and at briarwood.org slash live stream. You could read his obituary here and the obituary is, I'll put that the links in the show notes. Um, I encourage you to watch that Celebration of Life. It was awesome. In lieu of flowers, the Reader family requests that gifts be made to the Harry Reader Scholarship Fund at Birmingham Theological Seminary or the Harry Reader Memorial Fund at the National Christian Foundation or Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Please continue to pray for Cindy, the entire Reader family, the Briarwood Church family, and all who mourn this great loss. We thank God that what Harry faithfully proclaimed by faith, he now gloriously beholds by sight. Wow, praise God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Revelation 7.10. In the sure hope of the gospel, Reverend John D. Payne, Executive Director of the Gospel Reformation Network. Uh, Now we go to the talk, and this talk by Harry Reader was given in May of 2021. It is simply and appropriately entitled Christ's Church. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can click the link in the info on this video to go to the talk. If you're listening on a podcast app, just keep listening. Well, it is a joy and a privilege to um, introduce to you uh, Pastor Harry Reader. Uh, He is uh, my pastor. Uh, He has been my pastor for a very long time as I uh, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where uh, Harry was pastoring at Christ Covenant Church, a church he planted and served in for 17 years. 
Uh, I always had the privilege of sitting under his ministry, um, really while I became uh, reformed. And uh, uh, Pastor Harry uh, uh, did wedding counseling for us and officiated my marriage and uh, baptized one of my children and has been a constant encouragement uh, for these many, many years. He's been serving in this uh, wonderful uh, church for 22 years. Uh, of course, he has the Embers uh, to a Flame ministry for church revitalization. Uh, also, he has uh, the In Perspective uh, daily uh, podcast, uh, Today in Perspective, where he gives commentary on uh, current events from a biblical worldview. It's fantastic. I listen to it uh, almost every day, almost every day. Uh, I listen to that. It's fantastic. He, he likes to say that what Al, takes Al Mohler to say in 20 minutes, he says in 10. So, um, uh, But Harry is going to um, teach us. Harry, come. Well, it's great to be with you all, and we're glad to have you here. Um, Birmingham, Alabama. I love for people to come visit us for two reasons. Uh, it's not a much better place in the world to be. But it's also, if you come here, then it won't be a culture shock when you get to heaven. So, um, <laughs> so if you've got your copies of God's Word, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, a familiar text. Would you turn there or turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible? I, <laughs> I'm still having a hard time getting used to that. I can't believe Bible on iPad or iPhone. Uh, to me, that's kind of like kissing your wife through a screen door. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't quite see how you can do that. You got to, right, Dr. B, you got to grab a book, right? Yep. Okay, this is the Bible. So turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. Um, I know we're a little bit over time, so I'm going to uh, try to do a little bit of editing for you, and, uh, but uh, get to the essence of what my assignment was which is on mission, on message, and in ministry. So it shouldn't surprise you I would go to this text, although I have to tell you, it's somewhat ironic for me. You have no, many, you have no idea how many times in my life I've heard Matthew 28, 16 through 20 preached. You have no idea. I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, and we didn't have one missions conference every year. We had as many as our pastor thought we needed. Uh, we'd have three, four, five, and every preacher we invited in was convinced our church had never heard Matthew 28, uh, 16 through 20. I have heard many sermons on it. So ironically, I'm turning there to you, and I'm going to give you um, just three thoughts from it, but I want to give you five reasons why I went to this text when I was given this assignment. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, knowing this is an address and not a sermon, but I still would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's going to be read in your hearing, inspired and errant and infallible. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said, can you just stop right there just for a minute? This, this one's free. This wasn't even in the sermon. This is free. Here are the, they're on the one hand rejoicing, obviously. He's risen. They see him, but they're still processing. What all that means, they doubted. But what is the answer? 
the means of grace, Jesus came and he preached to them. Just like he does every time you and I preach, as Dr. Bickey said, Christ himself begins to speak to the hearts of his people. Look what now William says. He said to them, and when they, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted him. Jesus came and said to them, all authority had heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, or literally, I am with you all the days to the end of the age. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. So let's get right to it. My, this is my assignment. We come to this text of scriptures, and I want to give you five reasons, but before I get there, I'm doing this very carefully because I know uh, this movie was a pretty hard movie, but I went to see it. Um, you know, whenever you got a movie on Navy SEALs, Marines want to go uh, investigate and take a look and see what they did or what they didn't do. And, um, and there was a movie, Outlone Survivor. If you watch it, I recommend you get the TV version because it's a pretty hard movie. Uh, but, um, but in it, there are two things that kept, that kept happening. I just want to mention one of them to you. Two things that just, that just um, grabbed hold of me every time I watched it. And this is why I was glad to take this assignment. This is why I'm glad to speak after what John just challenged us with. And this is what I want you to hear. Um, when they're in this battle, it goes from battle scene, battle scene to battle scene. And every time incoming fire arrives, they get hit. Somebody gets hit. And when they get hit, one of them will turn to the other and say, are you hit? And their answer is yes. Next question. Are you still in the fight? Are you still in the fight? We are in a war. And the church is just like the Christian. It's a two-front war. It is a two-front war that we always have to be aware of. Now, in God's providence, because of his blessings through the first great awakening and the second great awakening to a lesser degree, we have not fought much of the battle as the church from the outside. In fact, one of the reasons I think God has blessed this nation is because by law it has welcomed the free practice of religion and the providence of God is right in line with the word of God. He said, the nations that bless you, I'll bless them. And I believe because we have had the welcome free practice of religion, that's one of the reasons God has blessed this nation. But now as we see this progressive political movement reset and we begin to see what is the number one enemy religion in general christianity in particular now not the persecution of lives but the targeting of the livelihoods of christians with various things is happening so we've got a war from the out this shouldn't amaze us satan has three strategies 
Three strategies, and we shouldn't be ignorant of them. Three strategies he has. Number one is intimidation. Number two is imitation. Number three is infiltration. Those are the three things he always does. Intimidation to get us to retreat or be silent. And, not, and he loves to intimidate because fear paralyzes. That's why we've got to have a right understanding of the work of Christ who has defeated Satan so we don't flee him. We flee temptation, but we don't flee him. We resist him and he flees us. That's the way this works. The second thing is that he loves to do imitation. That is a false apostate church and the appearance of the church, but not the reality of the church. The third strategy is infiltration. He infiltrates church membership with gossip and slander and divisiveness and all of those things. And he loves to infiltrate now, he, loved it. he loves to infiltrate the leadership of the church. That's why when Paul left the church at Ephesus, where he had been for three years, Paul said to them, when I depart, Satan is going to come in, where? Among you, the elders of the church. And, you, and what's going to happen is you're going to have wolves in sheep clothing. And when you have wolves in sheep clothing, they're going to do two things. They're going to teach perverse things and they're going to lead the disciples away to themselves. Instead of shepherding them to Christ, they're going to lead them to themselves and their own causes. And instead of teaching the Word of God, they're going to twist it and distort it. Now, why would Paul know that's going to happen? Because it happened while Paul was there. He knows what's going to happen, and that's why we have to be ready for this two-front war. The war outside the church that comes against God's people, and the war inside the church. One usually is intimidation from the outside and infiltration from the inside. Now, that's the war. As R.C. says, and used to say all the time, and now says in Stephen Nichols' wonderful biography to us, We've got to be battlefield theologians. We've got to be in the fight, and you're going to get wounded. Are you still in the fight? And what is that fight? That fight is we have to stay on mission. We have to stay on message, and we have to stay on ministry. And those three are, are interrelated to each other, but I'm going to suggest to you the key is staying on mission. And I want to try to affirm that with you in just a few moments that I've got with you. I want to give you five reasons why I've gone to this text to deal with this subject. The first one is a personal reason. I'm not going to spend much time on it because John actually... I think read my opening on this and he actually has already said it about himself but what he said about himself you can say about me I was not I know I know it's obvious I'm not one of the founding fathers I look so young up here I, I'm not one of the founding fathers but I was in one of the founding churches while I was in college and I was there and I got to listen to them and three of the um, I'm sorry, four of the founding fathers I have had the privilege to be mentored by throughout my life. Three of them are now with the Lord. And, um, and they've meant the world to me. And um, when, I was, when I was growing up, 
I was in a, an evangelical fundamentalist. I, I always like to put those two, and when I say fundamentalist and everybody jumps, you know, off the top rope and everything. I, I like it. It was winsome people. They loved the Lord. They loved the law. Sacrificially, they gave to missions. It was, uh, it was the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance Church, First Alliance in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, boy, did they had a heart for the gospel, a heart for the lost. And I'm deeply appreciative, but it was definitely in the fundamentalist camp. And then I, I was one to Christ in a Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. And so I was won to Christ by an evangelical reformed church. I mean, a church that was reformed, but it was evangelical. But then, what I think it's Michael Horton that says, the most dangerous thing when someone gets saved and then gets reformed is the next three years. And that's what it was with me. But I began to look around. And I love the fact that I was with some really committed Reformed people, and the church was really committed to the Reformed faith. It was a church I pastored as a student. But I looked around, we're not, we're not winning anybody to Christ. I mean, we are great at pointing out where everybody else is wrong, but we're not being used for people to get right with God. And here's this church that's growing like crazy, but we're not leading anybody to Christ. And I began to work my way through it, began to think my way through it. And uh, so grateful for Westminster Seminary. I finished up my education. And then I had the great privilege to pastor a little church that actually the Presbyterian wanted to close down in Miami, Florida. And I came into the PCA. I remember my first General Assembly, 1982. I stood with a guy that I was in seminary with, went to seminary with, I said, this is almost like heaven. And you know what I was talking about? What John just quoted. I heard the mission, faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and fulfilled the great commission. And now, evangelical breadth and heart and reformed depth and integrity. I thought I was in heaven. I loved it so much. I loved my presbytery, the South Florida Presbytery. It was an unbelievable experience as I could sit down with, uh, I'll never forget it, Jim Bland, Jim, um, Jim, Bland, Jim Baird, uh, Terry Geiger, uh, uh, Jim Kennedy, Ross Baird. I used to sit down, I'd just go buy them lunch and just ask them questions. And so much was I learning from them. That's so personally, I'm in this fight I love my founding fathers. I love what they did, and I love what I came to. So I'm in the fight, and I'm going to stay in the fight as long as I can stay into the fight until the Lord says the fight's over. And then the second thing is I want to give you a historical reason why I'm coming to this text. And the historical, I mean, I'm sorry, I want to give you an ecclesiastical reason. It's Matthew 16, you don't have to turn there. And it's that wonderful moment up at Caesarea Philippi where uh, Jesus turns and I say he, always, he did the first EE program. He, had, he said, I've got two questions. I, can I ask you two questions? I have a diagnostic question and I have a, a transitional question. Let me ask the transitional question. Who do people say that I am? Oh, you're Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. You, I mean, you're a great preacher. Everybody's downloading your sermons, Jesus. I mean, you, you're off the chart on sermon audio. Everybody's downloading. 
And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And you can always depend on Peter, can't you? Up steps Peter, and Peter says, uh, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed, keyword, blessed, are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Now, of course, you know, is, the, is Peter the rock or is the confession the rock? I actually think it's it, the, I actually think the rock is Peter representing the apostles confessing because Christ is the rock and the, and the apostles and the prophets give us the foundation. And so there is the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. I will build my church. You see, there's something called Christ's church. I can tell you, Frank Barker and I have had the privilege to serve this wonderful congregation, he for 40 years, me now up to 22 years. And probably one of the things that pains you the most, although you know why people say it is, oh, do you, do you and Frank used to hear it, do you go to Frank, you hear it. Do you go to Frank's church or do you go to Harry's church? And it just pains you because it's not our church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. So Briarwood, Evangel Presbytery, the PCA is not our church. It belongs to Christ. And Christ's church will prevail, but not every local church and denomination will prevail unless they remain Christ's church. That means it's not our mission. We've got to get on his mission. That means it's not our message. We've got to do his message becomes our message. His, me his mission, his message, and his ministries is what we are called to embrace. And he says his church, have you ever noticed, do you ever get the pamphlets? I get the pamphlets all the time. We need to re-engineer the church. Tell me a place in the Bible that it says, pray for Jesus to find architects and engineers for the church. No, we've got an owner, we've got an architect, we've got an engineer. What we pray for are workers who do what he tells us to do according to the specifications that he's given us. And here is, and this is, this is absolutely, this is, I believe this is absolutely crucial that you and I need to realize this, is that this church belongs to him. I love the way we named our denomination. And I keep, every, people always, they'll come and say, are you part of the Presbyterian Church of America? I say, no. I am a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. America doesn't own this Presbyterian Church. This is a church owned by Christ, and where do we find it? In America. I don't own it. This generation, I'm not looking to build a church for a generation, a demographic. I am not looking to build a, I'm not looking for Christ. This is Christ's church. It doesn't belong to a generation. It doesn't belong to a location. It, this church, his church belongs to him. Therefore, what we've got to do is understand from his word what is his mission, his message, and the ministries that he has ordained to carry out that mission and that message. The third reason why this text is important to me is historical. We are in a key moment. This should not amaze us. The very things that John pointed out, 
here is this uh, here is this progressive movement here is this progressive movement in the culture the reset and guess what is happening within uh, the professing church in the, uh, in the well the main lines disappearing but now uh, and um, as the main lines disappearing you now have this other movement that's coming in and guess what it's also a progressive movement and as that progressive movement's coming in what we are finding out is we now have a church that be, that is moving into apostasy in the event we're not the only denomination dealing with this independent churches other denominations southern baptists are dealing with this other people are dealing with it and what is happening well what we're seeing is a progressive movement that's happening and does that sound familiar to you something called two beasts in the book of revelation you know the beast of a tyrannical movement in the culture whereby a government says i'm god i'm the messiah I'll create the chaos and then I'll save you. And then comes a church that says, hey, here we've got a beast of the sea, we've got a beast of the land. We'll be the handmaiden that works right along with you. And so here is this apostate movement that is taking place right in front of us. It should not amaze us. Because if you just take a look at history, you take a look at the Bible, you take a look at the book of Judges, every time God does something gloriously and wonderfully, what happens? That 40 to 80 year mark is a dangerous place. The 40 to 80 year mark, churches, movements, schools, parachurch ministries, they have this initial movement and then comes the 40 to 80 year mark and usually the third generation of leadership in that movement and then you see the downgrade you want to see something you want you want i'm going to recommend two books to you tonight but i'm going to give one of them to you uh, i recommend it to all my southern baptist friends go read the forgotten spurgeon and the downgrade movement just go read it. The four, so where are we? We're at the 47 year. I've already, I've already been a part of one institution that has faced this. That's my beloved seminary. I love Westminster Seminary. I've had the privilege to serve as a board member, adjunct faculty, and uh, in that, uh, with that seminary. And as I've had the privilege, uh, we had a 10-year battle. And it shouldn't have amazed us. It was right in the 70 to 80 year mark. It shouldn't have amazed us. And what won the battle was staying faithful to the scripture in the face of intimidation and dealing with the issue of leadership and having good leadership that stayed in the fight. Some of them are here right now that were in that fight. And they stayed in the fight no matter what the threats were, the intimidation was. I've seen it happen, so I know that the fight can be won. And I want to enter into it in a way to win it. Let me give you a fourth reason. So personal reason, ecclesiastical reason, uh, a historical reason, a fourth reason for this I want to give to you is missional. I know what you said. Wait, did he say missional? Yes, I had a guy call me the other day, he said, Pastor, can you recommend a church? And they named the place. He said, no, I don't want one of those missional churches. And I said, whoa, hold it, hold it. I, I love history and I love words. Missional is a good word. <laughs> missional is a good word. Missional is 
a commitment to a mission and you're giving everything to it. <laughs> when you're missional, you are giving everything to accomplish the mission. The only time missional is bad is if you've got the wrong mission. So I want to be missional. <laughs> and I don't want to be missional on the wrong mission. I want the right mission. So I got to go to God's Word to find out what my right mission is. And not the culture. I've got to go to God's Word to find out what my mission is and what my message is on that mission. So there is missional. Now, why is this so important? This is a personal conviction. I'll share it with you. I believe I can support it in Scripture. Challenging, but I believe I can support it. And I know I can support it from history. Whatever the mission is, well, ultimately, whatever your church, Briarwood, the PCA, whatever becomes our functional mission will, will inevitably define and determine our message and our, mission, and our ministries. Mission controls message. If we decide social justice, which, by the way, I love biblical justice, but if we decide social, and that, that word is crucial, <laughs> that's a very heavy-packed word. If we decide social justice is our, is our mission, we're going to end up with a social gospel. If we decide we want all of our members to be successful in life, we're going to come up with a prosperity gospel. If we decide everybody's got to feel good about themselves, we're going to come up with a therapy gospel. If we decide, if we decide church growth is our mission, you're going to come up with a pragmatic gospel. I mean, how can I get the numbers, nickels, and noise? What do I need to do? You'll come up with a pragmatic gospel. If we decide cultural transformation is our mission, we're going to come up with a culturally accommodated message. That's what we're going to do. Mission is crucial. I want to be missional, but I've got to have the right mission because ultimately that will determine the message that is preached from this pulpit five years from now, four years from now, three years from now. Let me give you the fifth one. The fifth reason, and I'll just, this is where I'll start cutting because um, John's already been there. And I'll just mention a couple of things. The fifth reason is, is our present distress. Our present distress, I believe, is progressive Christianity, and I don't say that easily. See, uh, John went through a, a list of a couple of things, but the list is um, bigger. What are some of the inroads that we find in the evangelical church in general? Now, not the mainline church. They gave this up a long time ago. But what about, what about in the evangelical church? Egalitarianism. The notion, not that men and women are equal, but that they're interchangeable. The, the second thing that you're finding, and, and then, yeah, we wrote a, I, I was on the committee, so I think it was a wonderful study paper. But then we get words like five times, complementarianism, and a vote on it. 
We get words that authority with ordination, elder and deacon, but then what do we get? We get the sophistry of language and actions in which people nuance them because no longer do they want to stay faithful to it. That's an obstacle to overcome to get what we really want. Or revoice, side A, Hey, y'all got to get over this sexual ethics thing. You got to get over it because um, I would, this is in my DNA. This is in my DNA. And side A, you got to celebrate it with us and make room for it if, you, if the church wants to stay in tune with the culture. Of course, immediately, we ought to have the answer to that, don't we? We go right to Romans 1, which says what? It can't be in the DNA because the Bible says what? It's an unnatural lust. That ought to settle it for us right there. Or side B, I'm the victim of my sin nature. By the way, I, I believe it's sin and I'm not gonna do it, praise the Lord. But the desire is of the sin nature, but not a sin. Then, then therefore, it's part of my identity. Well, how in the world can that be? Number one, is there any example where we, once we come to Christ, that anything is our identity other than union with Christ? I'm in Christ, Christ is in me. That's the hope of glory. Or I go to Ephesians that says sexual immorality and begins to name all these things. They're not to be named among you. If they're not to be named among us, why would we say they name us? But the authority, that's where you really get to with progressive Christianity, is the authority and supremacy of Scripture. It's the culture that settles the arguments, not the Scripture. And so, progressive Christianity, as we deal with revoice and egalitarianism and this halfway gospel, the very thing that the Gospel Reformation Network got started on is still with us. We love to claim the declarative blessings of the gospel without, without believing and employing and proclaiming the transforming power of the gospel. Such were some of you. So I, as I look at all of these things that are infiltrating us, now, I think of myself as a pastor, and I think of you out there. What do we do? I feel like, well, I've got to go answer revoice. I've got to go answer egalitarianism. I've got to answer the issue of ordination. I've got to, what about the, and, and I, this is a first order thing, because I think these are gospel issues that are before us. Social justice, how do I deal with that? And how do I deal with the fact that we, I've got, PCA pastors that are canonizing extra-biblical books that you got to read if you're going to handle these issues. And then I'm told, I'm told my critique is wrong because you ought to believe in common grace, so you ought to be able to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Anybody heard that recently? Well, let me explain something here. Wrong metaphor. Yes, there is common grace that comes when people do works who are not believers. Broken clocks can be right twice a day. I understand that. But when something has been written against Christianity, 
in opposition to Christianity to replace Christianity that has no gospel, no salvation, no forgiveness, that uses the horrors of racism in order to create more racism. Whenever that comes to us, that's not meat with bones. That's like a thirsty man being in the ocean and looking at an ocean of water and thinking, I can drink it and spit out the salt. It's mixed in. It can't be spit out. And all the meat we need is right in the gospel that goes to the heart of racism and partiality and discrimination, which I won't dealt with. I've got three African-American grandchildren. But I want it dealt with, with biblical terms and categories. Multiple ethnicities, but we're one race under Adam. And you're sinning against the image of God, and you're sinning against the truth of God's Word, and you're not displaying the gospel where we are one in Christ. And I want to go where James goes. I want to go to the heart of partiality and discrimination, not pruning off the edges and then manipulating people to create more racism. So here, and as I read it, I now I feel like a pastor. I, I feel like Mr. Wacamole pastor. I got to knock this one down. I got to knock this one down. I got to knock this one down. And like three months ago, this just came to me. Wait, wait, hold it. The root and the roost of all of this is progressive Christianity. It's the invasion of the authority of the, of the culture in the church over the authority of the scriptures. And so I started handing out Machen's book. By the way, Legacy, Le Legacy Edition. Legacy Edition. I gave it, I gave it all my, I was right, I, my, the 20 plus guys I mentor, I, gave, I asked all my elders and deacons to get it. We've got it in the bookstore. We started giving it out. And then I get this pushback from PCA pastors. No, no, no. How can you do that? We're not denying the virgin birth. We're not denying, th th that's not where we are. But I believe that progressive Christianity, the reason I've done it is I believe progressive Christianity is of the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity. I believe it is of the same. It's got a different design in the dress, but it comes from the same fabric. Liberal Christianity did not set out to destroy Christianity. Liberal Christianity set out to do what? Save Christianity. From what? cultural irrelevance. We're going to save Christianity from cultural irrelevance so that, what? We don't lose our children. Anybody heard that recently? We're going to save Christianity so that Christianity in this modern mind does not go to the dustbin of history. Heard that recently? We're going to save Christianity from cultural irrelevance so that it can become the key instrument for cultural transformation. They even started a magazine from the turn of the night. This is the movement of the 19th to the 20th century, this Christian liberalism movement. And what was the magazine that was started? The Christian Century. And the mainline, and the, here's the other thing. We need to get rid of these dividing confessions. We all need to come together inclusively. Big tent. Heard that recently? 
And by the way, it's not about a set of beliefs, but about experiences and loving each other. Heard that recently? It's the same bolt of cloth. That's why I give it out. As my dear friend Kevin DeYoung said when we were talking about this and I was asking him questions, I love his book on the missional drift, by the way. Just go get that and forget what I said tonight. But, <laughs> but he, he made the point rightly so. The most important word in Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, which, by the way, came from the lectures he gave to ruling elders. The most important word is the word and. And his point was, lib Christian liberalism, liberalism is not a subset of Christianity. It is in opposition to Christianity. And because it uses our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. And Machen was perfectly on target with that. And I believe that's the bolt of cloth for progressive Christianity. Not at the end of the 19th coming to the 20th century, but at the end of the 20th going to the 21st century. We're gonna rescue the church from, Christ from, from irrelevance in order for us to transform the culture in order for us to create human flourishing. And when you got the wrong motivation and the wrong mission, theological liberalism was the result, the wrong message. Please follow that with me. Wrong motivation, we need to rescue the church. Not, I will build my church, y'all be faithful, but we need to rescue the church from cultural irrelevance. We don't make the gospel relevant. We may make it irrelevant, but there's nothing more relevant than our message and our mission. We don't need it rescued. We just need to start doing it. You're going to rescue from cultural irrelevance, and then, and then what became the new mission? Cultural transformation. Well, what do you have to do to get cultural transformation? You have to have a seat at the table. So you begin to massage the message so you get the seat at the table. And in Christian liberalism, what had to be massaged? We got to get rid of all this supernatural stuff. And so they vacuumed out of the confession, virgin birth, miracles, resurrection, all of that. We got to get rid of that stuff because the whole thing is just experience and belonging, isn't it? not a set of beliefs, those expendable. And so the message was gone. And now with progressive Christianity, what you're gonna end up is with theological progressivism and it is not Christian when you get there. Now, do I believe that progressive, those who promote progressive Christianity are wolves in sheep's clothing? Actually, I don't actually think so. I really think a lot of them, you know, Machen almost got sucked into Christian liberalism. I mean, he had a real bout for three years, two years in Germany. I think there's a lot of guys that have got drawn into it just the way Peter got off course and started doing another gospel. I think a lot of time we got sheep in wolves clothing, but it's still wolves clothing and has to be addressed. 
It still has to be addressed, and that is what will happen, which is theological progressivism. Well, Harry, what's the best thing to do? Well, the best thing to do is to do what God told us to do, say what God tells us to say, and minister the way God tells us to minister. The antidote to this, yes, I, listen, I, you need to understand. Revoice, you need to understand. Critical theory, critical race theory, critical law theory, intersectionality, that's the scorecard. You need to understand all that stuff because your people are going to be asking you. They're inundated and all of that. But I'm asking you to see that that is all the, the root and roost of all of that within the church is progressive Christianity. And you say, well, Harry, how can I understand that? Well, my elders have told me to preach on it for the next eight Sundays. So, there's a place you can go. But I, I'll send you, ask, you send me and I'll send you. So I have read these people, they're, they're the people who promote it, who propagate it, and all that they say about it. And I've done my best. And when I looked at it, at my verdict, my, when I did all of that, it came. This is the same fabric as Christian liberalism. The same motivation, the same mission, and you're going to end up with an adulterated and apostate message. That's what's going to happen. So what do we need to do? We need to be on mission. Five times Jesus puts this. I mean, he does it more than that, but five times up front. Each gospel and the book of Acts, he's telling them, go preach the gospel to the whole world. Go preach the gospel to whole nations. Make disciples of all the nations. That's what he tells us. So I love this text because it wraps it all up for me. <laughs> I'll never forget one of those times when they came into the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination and they, um, and they began to, uh, the guy began to preach. I mean, they were, we were all wondering, what's this guy going to do with the Great Commission? And this guy came in and he said, the most important word in the Great Commission is, what do you think he said? Go. Then he gave us three points. You take the go out of gospel, you got spell. You take the go out of good, you got odd. You take the go out of God, you just got D. Now listen, 13 years old, I still remember that. I still remember that outline. And I'm wondering how, I'm wondering how, how, how long can he keep this up? Then I go to Westminster Seminary, give them $60,000 or whatever, and I find out it's not even go, it's as you're going. <laughs> and then I find out there's baptizing and there's teaching, and those are participial clauses to modify the imperative, which is make disciples. So how do you make disciples? You got four ministries. You got four ministries to make disciples. Evangelism, going, enfolding, baptizing them. What happened? The believer and his household was baptized and added to the church. Enfolding with love, going with intention, everybody evangelizing, everybody, everywhere, every day. Then what? When they come to Christ by the grace of God, we enfold them into the body of Christ. You not only got a new life, you got a new family. Then what do we do? Discipleship, equipping them to observe all that I have commanded you. And how do you know you've succeeded? It's like a baseball game. Did y'all hear me? Baseball. Do you hear me, John? Ba not soccer, baseball. <laughs> 
My whole life until I got converted was baseball. My son goes to college to play soccer. My daughter marries a professional soccer player. And John, all of them in, I mean, where, where's baseball? I, but they're all in a communist sport. And, Baseball, first base, second base, third base, score. We teach our people when we disciple them to do what? Evangelize. Now we're on first base. Then enfold. Now we're on second base. Then do what? Equip them, disciple them. Now we're at third base. And how do you know you've scored? Did Jesus do any this evangelism, enfolding, and discipling? Yeah, it's called the 11. And when they saw him after three years of him evangelizing and folding and equipping them, what did they do when they saw him? They worshiped him. When you take sinners who fall short of the glory of God and their greatest joy now is to give glory to God, you know you have won the victory. And now all that you wanted to get done starts getting done. You see, I love church growth. I love people to get a right view of themselves. I love, I love to see biblical justice. I love to see cultures transformed. But the way cultures get transformed is sinners get transformed. And when they get transformed, their life develops a new culture. They got a new marriage culture. They got a new family culture. They get a new citizenship culture. They get a new way they do business for Christ. Now Christ and Christian becomes the adjective that controls every noun in their life. Christian men, Christian women, Christian husbands, Christian wives, Christian parents, Christian businessmen, Christian employers, Christian citizens. And that's what turns the world upside down. You see, when the Apostle Paul, when it says less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus, in Europe, an adversary of the kingdom says, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's not a blurb on a itinerant evangelist promotion pamphlet. That's a frustrated pagan spitting out 13 words. But what you and I know is Paul's mission was not to turn the world upside down. His mission was to turn sinners right side up. And that turns the world upside down. And that's on mission, on message. Whether he goes to the power center of culture at Ephesus for three years, the power center of sexual anarchy in Corinth, or he goes to the power center of the world, Rome, I am eager and unashamed to preach the gospel to you. That's our mission, make disciples. There's only one message that can do it, and that's the gospel-framed whole counsel of God. You see, the church's mission is narrow. The Christian's mission is broad. But the Christian can't do their broad mission. What do I require of you, what do I require of you, old man? 
But to do justice, that's biblical justice, to do, to walk humbly with God and to love mercy. They can't do that without a new heart, without a new spirit, without a new record, and without a renewed mind. Where has God appointed for people to hear the gospel, whereby in Christ the gospel is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life that is defined by the whole counsel of God, which is why he said to Ephesus, I'm innocent of your blood, for I taught to you publicly and house to house the whole counsel of God. We've got a narrow mission with a comprehensive message, and we turn out Christians with a broad, comprehensive mission, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. But they get there through the means of grace, through the church that is on mission, on message, and in ministry. That's how they get there. May I just uh, close with an illustration? I know you're ready, Mel. I can see you. And uh, I don't mind you getting on the edge of your seat. I, just quit snapping your fingers, please. <laughs> Folks, I stood up here preaching on our Sanctity of Life Sunday. And uh, you see, this is what I, I, so much I wanted to tell you, but I mean, in a culture, in a progressive church, you'll hear the sermons on the sins that the culture wants dealt with. But a progressive church won't deal with the sanctity of life or gender or marriage or sex only within a marriage of a man and a woman because they don't want to be called bigots and they want to be applauded so we get a seat at the table. So eventually, theological adulteration and then apostasy if your mission is cultural transformation. I sat here one Sunday on our Sanctity of Life Sunday and we brought up 10 ministries I hesitate to do this because I don't want it to sound wrong, but I'm just trying to find an illustration. Lawyers for life, that's a miracle. <laughs> Doctors for life, doctors for life. Adoption, it's right here, Lifeline, I highly recommend it to you. Um, um, our uh, Southeast Law Institute, uh, working on the political issues for life. Uh, uh, the uh, crisis pregnancy center that we, that's here, the um, uh, abortion recovery, man, I, I can't remember all 10 of them, and I'm sitting right there and I looked and I said, my goodness, eight of these ministries were started by Briarwood members. We didn't start those ministries. We discipled them. That was their passion. Now guess what? Salt of the earth. See the broad mission? Light of the world. See the broad mission? But probably one of my favorite is one of the most greatest experiences I had in my life. We got a phone call from a guy who was led to Christ here before I came. He was discipled here at Barwood. He went on to become a colonel in the Air Force. 
And upon his retirement, he was hired as commissioner over our prison system and told to go after this thing. It was unbelievable. We got a phone call. He had gone to New Orleans, and he had gone to South Carolina and saw two things. He saw what a church and a seminary could do in a prison. So he called us. He said, Bloody Bib is right down here in Brent. Bloody Bib is right down here. Would y'all go down there and take Birmingham Theological Seminary and, and also start a ministry? We'll give you a dorm. The name of the dorm by the guards was Fallujah. I'm, I'm not over-exaggerating. You could walk in there and see the needles in their arms. You could walk in there. I know this is inappropriate. I'm not going into detail, but the top sheets of a bed in the bunks would be down while unbelievable acts were done between those sheets. Racial violence between the Hispanic and the black and the white, it was, it was just nothing but gang warfare. Lethal weapons everywhere. And they said, this is your dorm. So Birmingham Theological Seminary went down there. My son, Ike's the president, and Thad James, our vice president, went down there, and we got married up with one of the finest pastors we've got in the PCA down at Brent Presbyterian, uh, nicknamed Chaplain Bull. <laughs> and they went down there, and they went to work. I went down there just this last year. We're two years in. We're into our second cohort, graduates. I went down there. And as I got down there, I went through the dorm. Blacks and whites are bunking together and Hispanics. There is no moral division. In fact, they're sitting in study groups. They built, we built a library and a little chapel for prayer in there. We've got a classroom where we're teaching, and they're going through the cohorts. We now have a church. We've started a new program called Jump Start When You Leave. Do you know what recidivism is in the state of Alabama? 87%. Do you know what it is in our jump start? Now, we've just started a couple of years. Do you know what it is? 6%. We've got a church. It's the church behind the walls. Our church behind the wire, excuse me. We've got these cohorts coming out. We went to the commissioner when he asked us to go. We said, we don't know. You've got racial violence. You've got drug issues. You've got uh, sexual addiction. We, we don't know what to do. He said, oh, yes, you do. Do for them what you did for me when I was a teenager. Evangelize and disciple them. And that's what we did. We didn't go in there with a racial reconciliation program, just the whole counsel of God and the power of the gospel, a drug rehabilitation. We didn't do any of that. We just went in there. And that's what happened under the leadership of these people. But I'll never forget sitting there right in front of me. I'm teaching, I'm, I forgot, it was, it was a soteriology class, and I'm sitting there uh, teaching. And in front of me, these two guys are whispering back and forth. One of them is this very large, muscular African-American, and the other is a very large, muscular white guy who has tattoos from his chin over his entire body. And they're smiling and listening, asking questions. The white guy had just delivered a paper on the Holy Spirit, according to Bob Inc., his ministry. 
and I shook hands with him, and I shook hands with him when I finished. I said, okay, guys, y'all spend some time in prayer, and those two guys turned, put their arms around each other and prayed. The white guy was the head of the Aryan Society. The black guy was a head of a militant group in Montgomery. And now they're just brothers in the Lord. That's the power of the gospel. That's when you can repent, do the deeds of repentance without being maneuvered into penance. That's when you get forgiven and you forgive one another as you've been forgiven. Can I tell you how that works? I got to tell you this. The guy, you had, I mean, I shook hands with him. I asked my son, I think it's, he's in there for five homicides. I'm really glad he's saved. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting there talking to him. And I said to my son, he held dead. It was on ABC News. I said, I didn't see it. And they sent it to me. You know how he got saved? He got saved after one of his homicides. He got put in isolation. And he could only get out 30 minutes. And he's out in the grass. And he's yelling out there. He's yelling out there uh, at everybody. And this black guy yells at him and says, I got three words for you. Well, you can imagine what he said back to him. And then when he quieted down, the black guy said, Jesus loves you. You. Well, you can imagine what he said back. But when he went back to his cell, guess who had been to visit him? His sister. Guess what she left for him? A Bible. Boy, that was lucky, wasn't it? <laughs> then what happens? He reads it. He comes out the next day. He's not converted. He comes back out. And the black guy says, I got three more words for you. Now get these. I forgive you. I forgive you. And he goes back and reads the Bible again, and he comes to Christ. That's the power of the gospel. So let's stay on mission. Let's stay on message. Let's stay in ministry. The city doesn't determine its welfare. We do. Go read Acts 8.1. Philip went to the city of Samaria, not to seek the city, but to seek the sinners in the city. And he preached Jesus. Next verse. And the city rejoiced and was glad. On mission, on message, in ministry, and stay in the fight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. Uh, Father, thank you for the patience of these uh, who have gone through so much today, but I pray from all they've heard, you would cause it to saturate in their hearts because we need these teaching and ruling elders in the PCA and these wonderful uh, women leaders who are here. We need them to be on mission, on message, in ministry. Your mission, your message, and your ministries. And may Christ be preeminent, lifted up, draw all men to himself, and we will give you the praise of the Lord.